My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. Hello and welcome, everybody. On today's episode, I have Ryan Howard from the Rolling Bones Podcast. We cover a handful of topics today, such as narrative versus mechanics, the rule of cool, and a little bit about how far you should push some of those things versus just sticking with the mechanics of the game. We end up talking about a handful of games such as 5th edition D&D, Savage Worlds, Dungeon Crawl Classics, and a handful of other books and some of the tools Ryan has gained from those systems. And there's also a neat critical mechanic that we end up talking about that would help deal with some of that hit point bloat that we know and love from Dungeons & Dragons. And to wrap the episode up, we talk about his podcast, Rolling Bones, which is a live show that takes place on Monday nights at 8 p.m. Central Time. Ryan was kind enough to invite me as a guest on this coming Monday's episode, the 18th. And that can be found on twitch.tv, and I will include a link in the description. If you're interested in being on the show, don't forget you can join the Discord server. That's one of the best ways to get a hold of me. Otherwise, you can also hit me up on Twitter. Or maybe you know a Dungeon Master that you would like to have interviewed, in which case you should hit them up and hit me up, and we can hopefully get something scheduled. And without further ado, let's jump into the episode. Welcome, everybody. I have Ryan Howard with me today from the Rollin' Bones podcast. Welcome, Ryan. Hey, thanks for having me on. Great to have you. Ryan, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started in the tabletop role-playing space? Gotcha. So I got into role-playing when I was in college. I started out super late in the hobby. Uh, I always was around tabletop gaming. I played Warhammer 40k. Uh, I bought comics, so I'd see people playing Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder in the comic shops that I would go to. Uh, but I never really got into it myself until college. I was uh, a theater student, and I took a look at some of the like role playing sessions that were available online. Uh, people are gonna make fun of me for saying this, but like seeing the Big Bang Theory episode uh, where they play D and D, I was like, they're acting. That's that's acting. It's acting and rolling dice. And so I immediately thought, this sounds like it's for me. I want to give this a try. And so I found a uh, a guy in my area who was running 5th edition. I told him I was interested, and I played my first session of Dungeons & Dragons, and the rest from there is history. And did you say, was that 5th edition D&D? Yeah, yeah, this was late 2014 early 2015 so it was right there at the beginning of of fifth edition oh nice yeah i also got into role-playing games kind of in college except when i got into it i didn't have anybody to uh teach me how to play i just kind of went out and bought a book and (laughs) started making other people play with me so i was always confused about how to get into it none of my friends were into it at that point so uh, I, I had to rely entirely on uh, like a Reddit r slash LFG to get connected with that first group, which I only gamed with for two sessions, and then to get connected with my other group, which I ended up gaming with for uh, like three years. And what do you end up playing mostly now? Is it still 5th edition? Yes, it's 
It's a lot of 5th edition and a lot of Savage Worlds as well. And I've gotten into... Uh, one second. Sorry about that. I, I've gotten into uh, several other game systems like... Uh, you know, some OSR stuff like Dungeon Crawl Classics. That's probably my favorite system right now. But as far as what I get to actually play on a regular basis, it's uh, 5th Edition and Savage Worlds. Sure. And do you end up being a player mostly, or do you end up running most of the games? Up until recently, I was a forever GM. I am in a uh, a weird point in my life where I am playing in more games than I'm running. I'm only running one game right now, and I'm playing in uh, technically two. Yeah, but for the most part, I am uh, usually it's it's on me to run a game if I want to play a game. Yep, I know. I know the feeling there <laughs> when you're prepping a game what is like the first couple of things that you do in order to get ready for a session so what i like to do and this is stolen directly from matt colville he is one of the kind of foundational figures in how i became a better gm uh i like to basically write up some kind of design document or uh like elevator pitch for my game so i i kind of type out the main conflict the players are going to initially find themselves in give them some information about the world that they're going to be playing in and then submit that to the players and say what do you guys think of this does this sound like fun to you and then from there you can kind of tailor things i i assume yeah, from there, w once you get people excited about the world, give them a little bit of information. Uh, at that point, a lot of players that I play with generally start coming up with elaborate backstories or start trying to fit different character builds that they've made into the world that you create. Some don't even try to fit them into the world. <laughs> That's always an interesting conversation. But, you know, usually... With a lot of the players that I play with, all it takes is just that little push of circumstances that you're going to find yourselves in. And a lot of times the, the kinds of people who gravitate towards this hobby will immediately pick up on something like that and go, yeah, I, I know what I want to do here, or I've got an idea of what I want to do here. Right. The gears start turning and then it's only a matter of time before you've got a fully fleshed out character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I find that when you give players that that degree of information, um, they they start to find little weird places in the world that they can kind of like carve out their their own space in. So the the best example I can think of is my Nighthaven game, uh, which I'm running on Rolling Bones uh, once a month. Uh, it's it's a city based crime game with fifth edition. And when I brought that up to the players, they immediately were like, one of them wanted to be a tinkerer. One of them started talking about, uh, you know, like being a uh, being a warlock who made a pact with an enchanted firearm because it's a setting that had guns in it. Uh, all kinds of great stuff, just just from like little pieces of information. Uh, a lot of times that'll get players just imaginations running wild. And sometimes you have, even have to reel them back in. But <laughs> sometimes all you need is a, a little bit of a seed because just coming up with a straight character with no, you know, when it's like super open ended, 
it can be hard to kind of settle on something. But once you have that seed of, oh, this is kind of the theme we're going for, or uh, here's some limitations that you guys have, you know, let's build something in that, then it, it can be a little bit easier to start putting together those those pieces for a character. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And do you have any tips for running the game when you're at the table? Uh as far as like creating scenarios that will get players engaged or like what kind of uh whatever whatever kind of uh, advice or or tips or tricks or anything that you've that you maybe picked up somewhere and and just kind of do frequently or you know it's like a habit at your table something that makes running the game easier for you just could be anything um yeah i mean one thing that that's really going to make your players uh, feel better about your game is if you de-emphasize strict following of mechanics in favor of what's going to be fun or what's going to create a cool moment or allow a player to think outside the box, provided they meet a set of criteria. So. I'll use 5th edition as an example. 5th edition is, a a lot of people treat it as like a closed system. So if, for example, your rogue wants to, uh, instead of attacking with his rapier, he wants to jump off the balcony, grab a hold of the chandelier, and do a swinging kick into the villain's chest in the middle of like a, a dinner party. There are GMs, and I've been this GM before, who are who are looking at the fifth edition book, going, "I don't know what you know damage you'd roll for that, or how how you facilitate that. Uh, I I I don't I don't know how you're going to do that. Um, just uh, you know, can, can you think of something else? But if you think on your feet, and if you're willing to you know kind of improvise with people, uh, in that moment, you know someone comes up with a a cool idea and you say, okay, uh, that sounds acrobatic. Make me an acrobatics check and uh, then roll to hit. And if you hit, you're going to deal a D8 damage and you'll knock him prone or something like that. Um, Definitely don't, don't get so bogged down in the mechanics and definitely think more about narratively what's going to be interesting here. Uh, not mechanically what is exact rules is written in this book, but narratively, what's going to be a great moment that you would see in a fantasy movie? Yeah, that makes sense. And I know a lot of the listeners, or at least the people that I've talked with on th- this podcast, um, it seems like there's a, a tendency to lead towards some of the more narrative games um then D D f- kind of for that reason right because they can get uh it's it's easier to do some of those cool things in those more narratively focused games uh when you have gms that will kind of roll things to a stop with with mechanics so i like to see um like you said to just just improvise it and I guess if I could throw my two cents in there in that situation, I would probably have the character just roll whatever their original damage would have been if they had just attacked him with a sword, basically, or whatever their like primary weapon is. Unless there were some like really big circumstances why they shouldn't do that, like they have like a battle axe or something that does like a ridiculous amount of damage. Yeah, 
Yeah, and it's always it's a balancing act. It's always a balance of uh, wh- when does the rule of cool, as people like to say it, go too far? And I've definitely been cautious in the past about letting stuff get way out of hand because, I mean, one, one of the players that I played with uh, when I was first learning how to play, he would always kind of go for the power game options. He'd always, he was the guy who wanted the... Uh, Cloak of Invisibility and the uh, Boots of Flight so that he could fly around the battlefield without being seen and drop fireballs on people. He wanted to turn himself into a stealth bomber. <laughs> and the the DM, to his credit, was like, I'm not giving you that combination of items. It's just not going to happen. And what this player would always lean on is, but it would be so cool. And And what you have to realize as a GM is what would be so cool for one player might make things less fun for other players or for you. Cause you now have to deal with the fact uh, that because of decisions you as the GM made, you have a stealth bomber that you're having to balance encounters <laughs> against. Uh, the imagery of a stealth bomber in a fantasy game is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see where and and that kind of comes back to, uh, Anytime you do say yes to something, you may be setting a precedent that this can always happen in the future. So you do kind of got to be clear as to what circumstances are maybe allowing you to take a certain action. Like the the chandelier thing is kind of a, I mean, it's, it's there's just not going to be chandeliers and, and ledges in every, you know, room that you're in. So it's kind of a one-off thing, but handing out magic items may be a different story. Yeah, and that's something that has made uh, the visual aspect of role-playing kind of a big emphasis for me recently. I used to be strictly theater of the mind, because when I started, I was a college student who couldn't afford miniatures or terrain or anything like that. And so I was just like, who who needs that? We we don't need that stuff. But when you have uh, room design, and I've seen this where uh, one of the guys that I gamed with... uh, in the past, he had a huge terrain collection. And so when I would run games uh, for that group, he'd say, what do you want the room to look like? And I would give him a rough idea, let him kind of fill in the the gaps of my rough idea. And a lot of times things would unexpected things in the combat would happen due to the way that the the room layout was presented, or I would change certain details of what the players saw based on the the layout of the room or, or unique features uh, that this guy would would put out on the table. So having some kind of visual reference that, again, gets the players thinking, OK, I see a fireplace over there. Uh, could I potentially at risk to my own, uh, you know, well-being, grab a log out of the fire and uh, smack the necromancer with it so that his robes catch on fire. And again, you as the GM on the fly will need to be like, okay, you know, make me a constitution save to hold on to the hot log, roll the attack. He's going to get a save. If he fails, he catches on fire. Right. And and really at the end of the day, especially for, for just about any tabletop RPG, Really, the the base mechanic is rolling a check, right? I mean, you can pretty much, uh, I, you know, you may maybe want to be careful, but 
anything that happens, if you don't have a mechanic for it, then find a stat and tell somebody to make a check, and you, you can pretty much handle most things in, in that way. Mm-hmm. And and one thing that I like to do, again, this is uh, this is a borrowed concept. Uh, I think I heard Matt Colville mention it once, and I also, my, my friend uh, Tim from the Knights and Nerds podcast, he's brought this up several times. Uh, if you can allow your players to make a case why a specific stat that their character may be skilled in could fit for a certain check. Uh, at that point, again, you have the players using their brains uh, to to affect the world around you, uh, which is something that I like to encourage in my games. And so, you know, allowing allowing players within reason to to make a uh, a survival check instead of an athletics check to uh, get away from uh, a giant spider chasing them through the forest. Uh, that is something that I would consider, you know, a, a valid switching of stats. If uh, let's say your ranger didn't pay too much attention to the athletics and in, in creating his character. Uh, sure. Yeah, so situations like that, if if you can make a good case for why it should be a different stat, uh, I'm willing to listen to that, and I'm willing to let you roll based on that. Have you ever, I think it's an optional rule, have you ever had them roll checks where, like, intimidation, for example, is charisma, but, like, if you're going to, like, threaten to beat somebody up, sometimes I've seen people run it as, like, a strength intimidation check. Do you ever kind of switch the... Uh, the baseline like stat that they use. I don't do that in fifth edition because fifth edition has the handy mechanic of advantage. Uh, so in that way, if you've got like a big barbarian who's not very charismatic and he wants to intimidate someone, if he says, "I'm gonna slam him up against the wall and yell in his face," uh, as I'm making my intimidation check, I'd probably grant him advantage. Sure. Yeah. Which is. Probably about the same effect without having to get into the math of actually switching stats and figuring out proficiencies and stuff. So I can see that being just a, a much easier option. And it's always fun to roll more di- dice anyways. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and you said that you play Savage Worlds as well. I haven't really talked to anybody that's um, really played much Savage Worlds or run much Savage Worlds. Do you want to talk a little bit about your experience with that? Yeah, so for anyone who's not familiar, Savage Worlds is a uh, setting agnostic game system from Pinnacle Entertainment Group, and its core mechanics are not just built around dice, but also around a deck of cards and uh, poker chips. So initiative is handled by a deck of cards and players can use poker chips to re-roll bad rolls or to uh, get rid of wounds if they get hurt. Uh, there's there's all kinds of things you can do with those chips. But the other kind of main thing around it is instead of rolling a d20 and adding a modifier, the more skilled you are in a particular uh, skill or the higher attribute that you have associated with a particular skill you get a higher dice type, all the way up to a D12. So someone with an average skill in something uh, would be rolling a D4 with no modifier, 
and someone uh, who's extremely skilled would be rolling a d12 with no modifier. And the other interesting aspect is with every roll, you're also rolling a d6, which is called the wild dice, which represents, uh, you know, the, the fact that any fool can get lucky doing something one time. And if you roll the highest number on your dice, that dice explodes and you get to roll it again. And if you get that high number, you get to roll it again and again until you stop rolling that high number. I think I've seen um, a little bit of Savage Worlds in a YouTube show that I watched a while back. Um, it was a solo it was a solo show, uh, Me, Myself and Die. I don't know if you've if you've heard heard of that or familiar with it that's the that's pretty much the only exposure i have to the savage world system because i believe that's what he used um in his first season gotcha i i'm not familiar with that show but um i mean savage savage worlds is a great system for uh small groups it it's perfectly usable for large groups although there there's a certain limit on how large a group you can you can get really with any role-playing game but uh yeah i mean it's a great system. It's got a lot of great settings for it. Uh, my personal favorite is Deadlands, which is a weird West game. Basically, uh, it's the Wild West, but there are uh, steampunk machines and the undead are walking around and there's all kinds of crazy monsters and weird stuff going on. Um, but you can play pirates. You can play fantasy. There's superhero games. Uh, your your options are unlimited when it comes to what you can do with Savage Worlds, uh, which is one of the things that I really like about it. Is that uh, the main reason that you would gravitate towards that over, say, 5th edition? Yeah, if I wanted to run something other than Medieval Fantasy, I would go to Savage Worlds uh, before 5th edition. There, there are uh, rules for, like, modern games with uh, with fifth edition i've got a book called spaceships and star worms which is a uh, sci-fi companion that kind of beefs up uh fifth edition's capabilities for sci-fi uh my my good friend todd moodenbounce has uh he, he plays a lot of star wars fifth edition which is uh fifth edition with a a star wars lean to it but when it comes to anything that's not medieval fantasy i i do think savage worlds is kind of a better solution there are there any um, like things after having run Savage Worlds? Are there any things that you learned from playing that system that maybe bleed into some of your um, GMing when you run other games? Uh, yeah, the the big thing from Savage Worlds that I like is, uh, you know, rewarding players for uh, good actions. Uh, so in Savage Worlds, the the GM has uh, bennies poker chips and if a player role plays well or does you know something well like that it's 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 very common for the uh, gm to to give a player a benny and i know that fifth edition has inspiration but so many gms forget about inspiration uh it it, it does take like some conditioning to reward players for uh you know coming up with creative solutions and i think savage worlds does that really well because of how integral the mechanic of using your poker chips is in the uh the mechanics of the game sure 
Um, so when you're running like fifth edition or something, then do you hand out like poker chips as like inspiration or how, how does that, how does that bleed over? I probably will start doing that, uh, next time I'm, I'm running a regular game in person. Um, but I mean, what that, what that would take the form of in fifth edition is just, uh, not being afraid to give someone advantage if they're, you know, thinking of something cool and unexpected like the, uh, the chandelier situation. If no guards have been alerted to the fact that the party is uh, sneaking into this this big event and the rogue sees the uh, the big bad standing over in the corner and he sees the chandelier and he's like, I could, you know, I could do this and he wouldn't see it coming. I'd be like, yeah, roll that with advantage. Sure. So it's just being a little bit more proactive in your GMing style and kind of enabling your players to do cool things, basically. Yeah. Absolutely. For combat in D&D, when you're like prepping for for combat, do you prep a ton of stats and stuff or or do you do some of that on the fly or what's your what is that process for you? Because I know that D&D combat can kind of be a lot sometimes. It can be slow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm still kind of trying to figure out uh, ways to make combat less clunky in fifth edition. I I've gotten a few good ideas from uh, some people that I know. Uh, one guy, Venger Satanis, who I've had on the show a few times. Uh, he's got this mechanic that he put out on Kickstarter not too terribly long ago called Crimson Escalation, where the crit range for attacks uh, increases for both sides of the combat as combat goes. So first round, you know, you crit on a 20. Second round, it's a 19 or a 20. 18 or 20. 17 or 20. And then if you're a fighter or barbarian with an increased crit range, yours would increase even more. Sure. So you're just... The the longer combat goes, the the more likely it is you're going to take a lot of damage. Or deal a lot of damage. Absolutely. Conversely. Yeah, it's that it's that representation mechanically of when you enter battle, the longer it goes, the more uh, your luck tends to run out and the more like fatigue would set in as you're continuously swinging a sword because there's nothing worse than five rounds in a row where the only person who hits is uh, the wizard who has run out of spells and is hitting things with a quarterstaff at that point, (laughs) dealing a D6 damage. And you're like, well, he's hitting and the monster's not hitting any of you. Uh, but this guy's dealing an average of like three damage per round. And it's almost time to end the game. And you're fighting a uh, you're fighting a beholder. So can can we find a way to expedite this situation? Can one of you roll well? So I assume that that really ups the tension in any battle, right? Because the the longer it goes on it you're going to get into like scary numbers in terms of damage if you if you take a hit yeah and i i think that kind of solves the the hit point problem uh cuz a lot of a lot of the reason why 5e takes so long in combat is the fact that players and monsters have so darn many hit points and there are great resources out there that help you kind of reduce that uh hanker infernal has a great book called 5e Hardcore Mode for anyone who wants to uh, find ways to brutalize 5th edition and and make it a lot easier 
for things to kill you and uh, and kill your players. 5e hardcore mode is good, but with something like Crimson Escalation, it almost doesn't matter how many hit points you have once you're four rounds in and anyone rolling uh, at that point, like a, a 16 or 17 or better, uh, is going to be critting. Right, yeah. Well, the nice thing about that is then you're not... Uh, that's a pretty simple rule to introduce that kind of uh, reduces the need for you to have other rules or, you know, monster creation or trying to edit how much stuff your players have versus the monsters or, or any of that. It's just, it's just one rule. It's easy to remember. And then it significantly reduces character and monsters hit points, at least how long they have them. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's funny because we actually had a conversation on uh, last week's episode about that exact thing about the D&D having a little bit of hit point bloat and just uh, the first couple rounds can be fun and then like the last couple rounds can be fun and then in the middle there's just kind of like people are just whacking on each other just kind of waiting. But I, yeah, I like that. I like the the critical mechanic. Yeah, and I, one of the episodes that, that you had and I can't remember who it was you were talking to uh, but you guys mentioned having uh, oh, it was unmade gaming. That's that's who you were talking to mentioning having the monster out there for basically just as long as it's fun. Yes. Yeah. And just the when it narratively makes sense to remove a monster from mm. combat. Uh, goblins don't need to stick around for too long if they get bonked. Um, other things maybe should stick around a little bit longer, especially Oh, I the couple games of D&D that I've run, it seems like the players usually get some lucky hits and it's like, okay, here's my big bad and we're two rounds in and he is completely out of health. <laughs> yeah, and that that comes around to when it comes to the big bad, you should never have a big bad fight where it's just him by himself, no matter how powerful he is, because action economy is always going to catch up with you in that situation. You you need to have some minions out there, if nothing else, just to keep the big bad alive for a few more rounds so that the combat lasts a, a little bit and isn't anticlimactic. That was the I my very first time running D&D, I ran a one shot and that was exactly what happened. I just had, you know, big bad necromancer and uh, and that was it. And then he just got plowed over pretty quick. <laughs> it was like three rounds. So. But there's a there's a great resource online called The Monsters Know What They're Doing. Uh, it's put out by a guy named Keith Amon. He's got uh, a book out by the same name, and it's just an explanation of each monster in the monster manual, uh, what kind of behavior they would have, what attacks that are on their stat block they would go for in certain situations, and how long they would typically stand by a fight or how they would act if you encountered one in the wild versus if you cornered one in its lair. Right, because if you corner something, and especially if it's cornered and injured or corner and has uh, others around, it's, it's going to act very differently than, you know, if it takes some damage out in the wild, it might just turn and run, depending on what kind of creature it is. Can you actually talk a little bit more about Dungeon Crawl Classics? Because I've heard I've heard that name come up before, but I, I have not actually read it or really seen much on it before. 
Yeah, definitely. So Dungeon Crawl Classics was put out by Goodman Games, uh, a great uh, you know game company. Uh, they also do Mutant Crawl Classics, which is a uh, like post-apocalyptic flavor of the same game. And it's basically a fusion of all that people seem to really love about old school uh, 70s era RPGs with some of the newer ideas. So you've got fewer hit points uh, for a lot of player options, like your class would be elf. Elf is not a separate race. Your class is an elf, your class is dwarf, your class is halfling and then there's warrior uh mage and thief but there's also new school ideas like uh you know ascending armor class so you're not having to calculate thaco and you have a mechanic called luck it's one of your starting stats and you can wager that luck to improve the the outcomes of your dice rolls and it has a super awesome magic system where you can burn your physical and mental stats to uh enhance the power of your spells so it's like uh some some jack vance really crazy wizards like cutting their hand to boost the power of a magic missile uh which is determined by a dice roll every time you cast a spell there's no spell slots but you Cast a spell, roll a d20, and then compare your result to a table, which determines kind of the outcome of the spell, which could mean you blow someone's head off, or it could mean you lose the spell forever. It just sounds like it's a lot more intense. <laughs> it is, but mechanically, it's very breezy, very you know minimal. It's designed to create a brutal challenge that players will have to solve not just with the rule book and the character sheet, but with the rule book, the character sheet, and their brains. Sure, so it kind of forces them to come up with creative solutions. Yep. Yeah, and it it embraces the notion that role-playing games aren't about uh, overcoming every single obstacle from beginning to end. They're about surviving until you can overcome. And I think I think earlier in the episode you mentioned that this is kind of your favorite system right now. Oh, yes. Yeah, this is definitely my favorite system right now. And what is it that draws you to the system? It's this idea of earning heroism. So for all the good about 5th edition, a first level 5e character is pretty powerful already. You, You have a lot of power right out of the gate in 5e. And a lot of players will come to the table with a, uh, you know, a character who's already been adventuring before uh, they, you know, show up with this first level character. So what Dungeon Crawl Classics does is it takes you literally from farm to adventuring uh, with its funnel. That's another thing that I forgot to mention about DCC. There's a funnel that you go through where you start with a uh, like basic profession be it farmer, uh, banker, scribe, nobleman, city guard. And you have to go through an adventure where if you survive, you then become an adventurer and you then get to pick your class. So instead of 
starting somewhere in the middle of your career and being super powerful, you're starting at the very beginning. You're coming straight off of the farm, uh, straight out of the uh, the guards barracks and having to prove that you can survive long enough to uh, maybe someday have a bard song about you. Sure. That almost uh, the imagery that I got from that was was just like you're the Luke Skywalker or the Harry Potter where they don't when when we first meet them in their story, they are kind of nobody at that time. Yeah. But then they go, th- they go through that in kind of initiation. And, and if they make it, then they come out on the other end, you know, much better than they, they were before. Yeah. And and that's classic fantasy. I mean, that's that's the story of uh, both Bilbo and Frodo Baggins. Right. The the hero's journey, as they call it in in storytelling, usually. Yep. yep. But yeah, they just I'll have to look into that one too. And so many RPG books that I need to read. Um, but I I hearing you talk about it, it just sounds really cool, and I like some of those more um, gritty or things are just a little bit more uh, dire, maybe making things a lot more difficult. Uh, definitely check out 5e Hardcore Mode from Runehammer Games. I mentioned it once before, but it it basically kind of brings some of those uh, mechanics in that makes the game more challenging and makes it feel a little bit more like there's something at stake every time you enter combat. Uh, but Hanker Infernal's a great guy. I've had him on the show a couple times. Uh, and 5e Hardcore Mode is a, a fantastic uh, book for anyone who... Uh, hasn't picked it up yet. And, and for anybody that's listening, he's also the author of ICRPG, which I know has been mentioned before on the podcast. So um, if you haven't heard his actual name, then connecting connecting the dots there a little bit. That's really cool that you had him on your show. I would love to talk to him. Yeah, he, he's a fantastic guy. You should definitely reach out to him. Uh, he, he has this... Uh, kind of crazy punk rock sensibility about him. Uh, but the way his mind works is, uh, you know, fantastic. And some of the stuff that he comes up with, some of the stuff that he's thinking about, uh, the the notebooks that he builds based on role-playing games, he, he showed them uh, on stream one time. And it's stuff like, here's rules that you could potentially use in mass combat next to like a recipe for uh hot sauce and stuff like that. So he he's out there, but he's out there in like the best possible way. He he really is a great uh role playing mind. I was following his stuff really closely when uh kind of his first and second version of ICRPG was coming out. Um I really like that system too just for simplicity and again your health is low um just just really to me that's kind of like a streamlined version of of D. well i think this might be a good time to transition and talk a little bit about rolling bones and what you have going on over there yeah so rolling bones is a weekly live show i do it on twitch twitch.tv slash rolling bones ryan uh, we go live every Monday night at 8 p.m. Central, and it's usually one of three things, actually one of four things. Either I have a guest on who I'm interviewing, kind of like this, 
Uh, but instead of focusing on like game mastering tips, the the conversations usually kind of go all over the place, uh, depending on who I'm talking to. Sometimes it's stuff like this. Other times it's game design or uh, why certain games aren't as popular as other games or the history of a particular company. Uh, the other things that I do are solo episodes where I just kind of talk about different topics that are a, a bee in my bonnet uh, in a particular uh, circumstance. Usually it's something that just makes me want to rant and go off, and so I'll talk about that for way too long. Uh, I review games. Uh, so anytime I back something on Kickstarter, I generally have a review of it once it arrives, or if a friend of mine has put something out, I'll review it. I'm pretty cool about uh, looking at things and then reviewing them if uh, audience members reach out to me with uh, you know something they want to see talked about on the show. So if any of you have a game that I haven't reviewed that you want to see me review, definitely hit me up uh, at Howard underscore Ryan Gregg on Twitter and Instagram, and I will uh, review the product if I think it's something worth talking about. And the last thing I do is uh, actual play with my Nighthaven group. Uh, once a month, we do an episode where uh, we play Nighthaven, which is a setting that I created. I'm hoping to publish it and publish the adventure that we're running uh, at some point in the future. Fair warning for anyone out there who is not uh, 18 or older, we do get into some grisly topics. Uh, the game is a it's a crime game set in an urban setting, uh, kind of focused around uh, some magic students who were kidnapped. So there are uh, some not safe for work, not safe for kids topics that are addressed in that particular game, uh, just as a warning for anyone who is interested in that uh, particular aspect of things. Uh, just just know that going in. And is that a like a, a live stream that you guys do every month then? Yep. Yep. Once a month, it's me, John and Joe Page from Project Full Blade, which is a uh, an online RPG project uh, where the rules are constantly being updated and tweaked. Uh, rather than releasing a physical product, they just have kind of a, a living online product that's evolving and changing, uh, basically to allow people to just play more fun role-playing games. And then uh, Prax and Rez from the Gamertarians, which is a video game live stream uh, where they're playing Rocket League. I'm going to have to check that out. Um, one thing that I always bums me out about all of the pdfs that i have collected is that they just don't read super great on your phone and i just want it to be a website that that just resizes nicely <laughs> so i i like the idea of a rpg that is or at least supports some sort of like a web version that's just easier to consume than pdfs on a phone screen yep and not just a constant uh, gotcha trap like D and D Beyond. <laughs> yeah, I haven't. I've used D and D Beyond a little bit, um, but most of the well, the first campaign I was in was before pandemic, uh, so we didn't 
need you know any digital tools there and then the second one that i was in uh, we pretty much did everything inside of roll 20 so uh i haven't i've i've vaguely messed around in D beyond but never never gotten too far into it I wouldn't be so hard on D&D Beyond if they put codes for uh, the D&D Beyond material in their physical books. And I know there are contract reasons why they can't do that, but I bought Dungeon Crawl Classics from Goodman Games at North Texas RPG Con, and I opened the book up, and right there is a code for the PDF version so that I've got both and don't have to pay for both. That kind of convenience is all I'm asking for from from Watsy, but <laughs> they're not interested. They they don't care. Well, and that's kind of nice. A lot of uh, stuff that you get off of Drive Through RPG, if they have a physical edition, usually there's a bundled edition that's like the same price as the physical, and you just get the the PDF version included, which is always nice. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, Kickstarter campaigns do it too. Everyone else has figured this out. They don't seem to be hurting for revenue. Um, <laughs> in as far as you know, the, these companies keep putting products out. I, I don't know why Wizards decided to do it that way. Um, again, they're not missing any revenue, so uh, <laughs> I, I guess they're fine with it being a little bit inconvenient for their players. But you know, I'm just saying, customer service wise, that seems like the smart move. Um, speaking of online play, and I, I assume that your live stream especially uh, uses some sort of a virtual tabletop? We use Roll20 uh, for Nighthaven, which is fine. Uh, Roll20 used to be super cool to me, but then uh, playing in Deadlands of the Hellgate trilogy, uh, our game master there, Cheyenne, he's using Foundry. And I don't know if you've heard of Foundry VTT, but it is um, it, it is unbelievable how customizable, how visually appealing, how uh, amazing Foundry is uh, as far as like creating an immersive experience for your players. You definitely pay for it. It costs uh, like fifty dollars for the license to uh, to use Foundry, but once you uh you know get the rules added in for whatever system you're using it's great for savage worlds i imagine it's great for D. but you've got so many options there at your fingertips to create uh like a really immersive game world uh it, if you have the uh, the talent the time and the inclination to uh you know bring in those assets and uh, have them populate the the tabletop um, I've had other people mention it, and it seems to me like a uh, kind of a similar sentiment. If people who have used it, that seems to be their their go to. Um, I think the last person that I had talk about it mentioned that you can do like like custom scripting and stuff inside of it. Um, so uh, me being a software developer, I would probably get just sucked <laughs> sucked down the rabbit hole uh, if I splurge on foundry yeah if your background is in uh software development then you would have a ball with foundry uh i i'm not as technical as i'd like to be so uh i i haven't been able to get under the hood with foundry just yet at some point i will and i'll try to teach myself how to use it uh but for people who are very technical like tech savvy and 
very artistic and and really wanting to create that kind of experience for their players foundry is the way to go i'm gonna have to look into that some more i've pretty much just used roll 20 just for familiarity and ease of use um but also the owlbear rodeo is is kind of nice if you don't want to have some of the extra stuff that roll 20 has you can just load up maps and tokens really quick in owlbear uh, without accounts, which is nice. Uh, that's the other one that I've used. And you... uh, for oh, go ahead. Oh, just uh, for anyone who is using a virtual tabletop and you want to make maps uh, pretty easily, uh, Incarnate, I N K Arnet, is a fantastic tool. Uh, again, it's mostly free to use if you want to. Uh, pay the $15 a year for premium access, you get a, a whole bunch more features, but it's a great way to create those uh, those maps with kind of minimal uh, expertise needed for, uh, you know, your, your RPGs. Um, and speaking of maps, uh, you it sounded like you use maps quite frequently, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And do you end up making a lot of those maps or do you find them online somewhere or what's where do you get your maps from? Uh, generally, I make them every now and then I can find good ones online that I really like or uh, if it's last minute and I didn't get the chance to make a map, I, I can generally find something in the Roll20 store. Uh, but for the most part, I, I enjoy making my own maps because, you know, I get to stretch my imagination in that way and, and give the players some uh, interesting details to latch on to. That probably helps a little bit with streaming, too. I know you can come into some conflicts there with uh, whether or not it's okay to use certain maps if you don't have permission when you're streaming online. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. You you want to make sure if you're streaming, you want to make sure it's something you purchased or, you know, you're, you're giving credit uh, where credit is due. Um, and you're, so your podcast is is mostly a live show, but then you do have the episodes come out separately that you can listen to later, correct? Yeah, absolutely. For anyone who can't make it uh, on the night of the show, uh, we put up the full episode on YouTube, and then we also put out an audio version on... uh, I'm hosted on Anchor, just just like you are here. Uh, So it's on Anchor, it's on Spotify, Google Podcasts, uh, you know the whole every every platform yeah i uh i really enjoy using anchor um it just has been a very smooth experience and i really like that i don't have to pay for it <laughs> oh yeah yeah anchor was great I, I used to do a music podcast uh where where i would talk about the band rush one of my favorite bands of all time and uh we my, my co-host and i used podbean for that and we were we were paying for it and when I discovered that you could just host a podcast on Anchor for free, I was like, oh, this is amazing. Yeah, when I first started the the podcast, that was one of the first things I was looking at was, okay, I got to get podcast hosts somewhere. And I looked at a couple and I was like, okay, it's going to be like a couple bucks a month. And then I was like, oh, Anchor. Oh, it's free. Oh, perfect. There's my winner. <laughs> Absolutely. Probably helps that Spotify owns them. So their revenues is not from anchor it's from having more stuff on spotify basically yep absolutely cool well um is there anything else uh that you would like to talk about either 
role-playing game related or about your podcast? Uh, as far as like role-playing games go, uh, I, I really do want to encourage people to, uh, you know, definitely always stick with the game systems you love and the ones that your players are comfortable with. And I know for a lot of us, that's, uh, you know, fifth edition or, uh, you know, Pathfinder for kind of a smaller number of people. Uh, but I definitely want to encourage everyone to give other game systems a chance and see what they can do. Because, you know, D&D, like, like my friend Stu Horvath always says, D&D is blue jeans. It's always going to be there. It never goes out of style. It's ubiquitous. But there are other game systems that do things a little bit differently, uh, create a different feel, uh, maybe, you know, capture a different type of gaming experience. So if your players want to keep playing but seem a little bit burnt out on the usual definitely take a look at things like, you know, Dungeon Crawl Classics or uh, Old School Essentials, uh, Savage Worlds. I love that system. Uh, even stuff like, you know, Blades in the Dark. If you've got uh, players that are constantly bugging you about, like, doing a heist session, uh, you know, check out something like that. Uh, but, you know, when it comes to, to systems, don't be afraid to stretch your legs a little bit and try... Uh, something a little bit new. It, it's going to be a learning process for everyone at first, but you know you might discover something you love even more. Do you want to just give one more kind of blurb of where people can find you online? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Howard underscore Ryan Gregg. If you want to see the miniatures that I'm painting, Instagram's the place for you. I love to paint miniatures, and you'll you'll find them on there. Uh, and for the show, it's live Monday nights at 8 p.m. Central at twitch.tv slash Ryan, or you can catch it on YouTube. Just look for Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard on YouTube. And you can search the same thing on the podcatcher of your choice if you aren't able to catch it on YouTube and just want to hear the audio. Awesome. Well, thanks for being on, Ryan. No problem at all. This was a ton of fun. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. You can find links to all of the products and resources that we talked about on the show in the show notes. And if you'd like to join the community or find out how to be on the show, check out our subreddit or join us in our Discord server.